From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, the Me Too movement has exploded across the cultural landscape, opening up conversations about sexual abuse and assault in every sphere of society. Today, we look at the impact of that movement on the church as we talk to the Reverend Ruth Everhart about her recent book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. Stay tuned. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Ruth Everhart. She's an author, speaker, and pastor who has served the Presbyterian Church USA for more than 20 years. She's a graduate of Calvin College in Michigan and the United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. She's written for publications such as The Christian Century, Sojourners, and The Washington Post. She's the author of Chasing the Divine in the Holy Land and the Christianity Today award-winning memoir, Ruined. She lives near Washington, D.C. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. And for listeners with small children or who may feel triggered by such subjects, I just want to let everyone know that we will be dealing with some frank matters during this conversation. Reverend Ruth Everhart, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, your book, The Me Too Reckoning, is deeply personal, very honest, and it starts out at the moment of of cultural crux that we're at right now, which is the hashtag Me Too. And for listeners who maybe haven't been paying attention, let's take a moment and just make sure that all of us are on the same page about what we mean and what we're talking about when we're talking about this hashtag and the phenomenon around this hashtag known as Me Too. What is that precisely? Well, it has a little bit of a longer history, but what most people think of is really the fall of 2017, when the Harvey Weinstein allegations were first made, and they kind of broke over a weekend in October and saturated the media. I can still remember uh, that weekend, I happened to be speaking at a group of church professionals in Vancouver, British Columbia, and... There was just so much kind of electricity in the air because of what was going on in the media, newspapers and on Twitter. And, you know, it it just created a kind of a profound shift in awareness. Basically, uh, Tarana Burke had started the hashtag as much as a decade earlier uh, as a way for people to signify that I've been a, a victim of sexual assault. You know, I've been a victim. Yes, well, me too. And um, so that just became a um, shorthand for survivors to acknowledge their story 
in a public way. And for many people, that was the first time that they'd been public with such a revelation. The event that I spoke at was for professionals uh, on a Saturday, and it just happened that the next Sunday morning I was preaching at a large conservative church. And uh, one of the women, I was going to be preaching on the Jesus healing the woman with the flow of blood, and it was very much geared towards this issue of, of sexual assault and healing the shame around that, because that was following on from my memoir, Ruined, which is about healing from sexual assault. And it was just interesting that someone earlier in the service, during a time of prayer, acknowledged what was happening culturally and said, who here would say, me too? And I was shocked that in this kind of very white, very conservative place, so many hands went up. And then she said, and who here loves someone who's a me too? And like every hand went up. And people were just crying all around the sanctuary, just tears streaming down faces. And it was such a profound moment. I thought, wow, when do we talk about this in the church? We don't. And this is exactly what I hoped for when writing my memoir. And I just can kind of point to that weekend as really being the seedbed for this new book, The Me Too Reckoning because it was exactly the thing that kind of kicked off from one person's story, you know, my story in this case, to, no, this is a culturally wide phenomenon that women are assaulted and abused and victimized, and the Church needs to respond. Well, a moment ago, you mentioned a story from the Bible, the woman with the issue of blood, and it comes from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 5. I wonder for listeners who may be unfamiliar with that story, just briefly recount for us what goes on in that story. Well, I sometimes call it Jesus healing two daughters because it's kind of an interesting sandwich story. Jesus is at the center of a throng of people who, of course, want something from him, and one of the people who kind of gets through to him is a man named Jairus, who's a leader of the synagogue, who comes very humbly to Jesus and says, um, my daughter, my little daughter is at the point of death. Would you please come and heal her? And so Jesus is kind of on the way to healing this man's daughter. And along the way, he sees another woman. He only sees her because she insists on being seen, you might say. She worms her way through the crowd and touches the hem of his garment. It's kind of a real famous image from this story of her hand kind of sneaking through the crowd to grasp his hem because she tells herself, um, and, and the scripture gives us her actual like thought process, which is so precious. If I but touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. And it works. I mean, as she touches this cloth, she feels that the bleeding in her stops. And so she has what we call the, an issue of blood. Sometimes people call her the hemorrhaging woman or the bleeding woman. Basically, it's a menstrual irregularity. So, so the story is really powerful because of all the prohibitions against women who are bleeding from there being in public spaces and Jesus healing her. And then after this kind of wonderful moment with a bleeding woman, 
then you return to the first daughter, the daughter of Jairus. And so this kind of sandwich story, I think, is really the the gospel in a nutshell, kind of doubled, you know, to make sure you don't miss it, that Jesus cares about daughters. It doesn't matter how old they are, and it doesn't matter what their infirmity is, because Jairus' daughter has actually died in between time, and she's a young girl. She's 12. So it's, I, I just, it's just one of my favorite passages, because I find it so empowering for women. Well, let's dig into that a little bit, because this woman with the issue of blood, because of this physical condition that she has, because she has a menstruation that will not stop, is the interpretation, she is falling afoul of the laws that are in Leviticus that say that when a woman is menstruating, she has certain obligations to the community to withdraw herself from the community. And so this woman has been socially isolated because of this. Basically, a loophole in the Levitical law has kept her socially isolated. And so when she reaches out, she is taking a step of faith almost to say, I want back in, and I I want the healing that will bring me back in. And if I'm reading your interpretation of that story correctly from your book, The Me Too Reckoning, it's not just that Jesus heals her physically, but Jesus restores her socially by calling her daughter, doesn't he? Absolutely. That's right. He he allows himself to be touched. He allows the healing power to go forth from him. You know, he isn't aghast that a bleeding woman would have touched him, you know, violating these Levitical laws. And he uh, not only heals her and restores her to the community, but by calling her daughter, just... I mean, here's a woman who's older than he is, uh, probably. I mean, she's been... She's had this condition for 12 years, the text tells us. So she's not a young woman. And he calls her daughter, you know, this kinfolk word, um, word of belonging, this word of incredible sweetness, and and claims her, which is just fine, so powerful. Well, and when this happens, now what we have here is an example of Jesus basically saying, society has said you are unwelcome. Society says you don't belong. Society says you should be cast out. I gather you in. And that begins to open up for us an entire range of conversation around the way particularly conservative church communities have treated those who have been sexually assaulted, because sex is a taboo in our society. Even if the person who has been assaulted did not consent to the assault, oftentimes they can be treated as outcasts. First of all, am I understanding that mechanism correctly that you raise early in your book, The Me Too Reckoning? Yes, I think you've encapsulated it well. Well, and so if that is the case, and in the next segment we will get a little bit into your story and how this impacts you, but I think that a lot of people who first encountered the Me Too hashtag around the Harvey Weinstein story, I think that may they may have thought that this was a secular problem, a Hollywood problem, but you are locating this as a problem that is deep within the heart of the church. And when you're trying to alert listeners, when you're trying to alert readers to that, what are some of the things that you can bring 
to anchor that and to really bring that home for them. You mentioned that one meeting that you were at where everyone raised their hand to say that someone has been affected by this. Are there other pieces that we can look to that can begin to show us and can begin to sort of demonstrate to my listeners how deep this problem goes? It's not just a Hollywood problem. It's a church problem. Well, I think a person just can look at their own experience and at the experience of the people around them. I mean, it's often a secret or um, treated as a secret, but it doesn't take much probing now that the, some of that secrecy has been opened up to realize how common these stories are. I think if a person were to bring this up in a faith community and in a place where they could build some trust and make someone feel that they could be safe, telling what's truthful, the stories do pour out, because this isn't a problem of some particular facet of society. It's just a human problem. And, it's, you know, it's not even just a human problem today. It was, it's been a human problem for millennia, which is why the Scripture is such a rich resource for us, because we can go back into stories that are ancient and yet feel very modern. Well, and, and so as we begin to go back into those stories, and this is one thing that you do so well in your book, The Me Too Reckoning, is that even as you are plumbing into these very contemporary, these very honest recollections of your own path and the path of others, you're weaving them together with stories from the Scripture. And, and right before we go to break, I'm, I'm just interested to ask you, what was it that inspired you to bring those scriptural stories in so closely to the stories that you were telling about contemporary victims of abuse? Well, as you mentioned earlier, that this book springboards from my personal story. And my personal story of healing is very much tied to these scriptural stories. In other words, where I found healing was not from the Church as an institution, but from, from the pages of Scripture— so when I think about this as a pastor or as a believer or as a mother of daughters, and I think about which pieces have been healing for me personally or do I know are healing for other women, it's the pages of Scripture, these stories that are too often ignored or told with a very slanted lens, I might say. So... I knew from the beginning of writing this book that the gift that I could bring would be a particular lens on these scriptures and with the hope that others might find it as healing as I have. So to encounter Jesus in the scripture is to encounter um, a profound healing because there is so much respect for a woman's agency and her value and her worth which is an antidote to what is more common in society, which is this kind of unacknowledged misogyny. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with the Reverend Ruth Everhart. She's the author of the recent book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Ruth Everhart about her recent book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. And I just want to alert listeners that we will be dealing with frank subject matter during this hour. And if you are listening with small children or if you feel triggered by these sorts of subjects, you may want to take a moment away from this program. So in both your book, Ruined, and in your book here, The Me Too Reckoning, you deal very frankly with the fact that you were sexually assaulted. And if we could briefly just recount the basic details of that and then use that as a way of getting into this larger conversation about sexual assault in the church, that's kind of where I'd like to go at this particular moment. But if you're comfortable telling us a little bit about the experience that you had, I think that would be helpful to my listeners to give them context for how this question touches you personally. Sure, and these are stories that I cover in the book, or at least allude to. The story that is kind of the foundational story of my life is growing up in a Christian home and being at a Christian college, being a senior at that college, and having the experience of a break-in to the house I was living in that had a few roommates, and two men who were strangers to us broke into the house that night and uh, held us hostage and uh, robbed us and then raped us each uh, in turn at gunpoint. And it was a really horrific, traumatic experience that just uh, changed everything about my life because my kind of Christian foundation was predicated on the belief that if I was a good girl, God would be nice to me. You know, like that was what I thought, well, I wouldn't have said it that way, but that was the emotional belief underneath what I believed intellectually about faith. So that was a real life-changing event, and the decade that followed was one of recovery, and Eventually, I felt a call to seminary and into ministry and became a pastor. And in a sense, all that I'd experienced, some of it got kind of shelved. I mean, I experienced some healing and, and some new vision for my life, but I was also just kind of overtaken by the demands of ministry and becoming a mother all at the same time. And then I went into my first church as an associate pastor, and lo and behold, my senior pastor, my boss, sexually harassed me. At least that's what we would call it now. Back then, in 1990, the term sexual harassment was not common, and I didn't even have a framework for describing what was going on. All I knew was that it was an untenable position to be in. So it was years later that I felt called to really put my experiences on the page and try to unpack them completely for other people because I wanted to trace grace through them. I mean, if, if our lives are a gift and all that happens to us is a gift, sometimes you have to wrestle that gift down. And so that was what I did in that first memoir. Uh, ruined. Then in the Me Too Reckoning, I decided to go even further and go into that issue of sexual harassment or sexual abuse by my senior pastor. So there's two separate stories going on that are 
interlinked. And so what I try to do is look at what are some of the threads that connect these two very different kinds of sexual assault. Well, and one of the things that jumped out to me was that in both cases, it seemed to me as the, as a reader that the church community, whether you're talking about the community where you grew up and that was surrounding you when you were a victim of that horrible sexual assault when you were in college, or the community that was there in the church parish that you were in that was surrounding you, the Presbyterian church's sort of governance structure, in both cases, you were really failed by those communities because it almost was as if they couldn't process you as a human being. They had to find a way to put you into a set of categories. You're overly emotional. You're a victim. You're, you're imagining things. But they, they, it seemed that at each point, what was most important to that particular church institution was to listen to your story and then tell your story back to you in an altered way. Now, first of all, have I understood that dynamic correctly, or would you say it in a different way about your experience with these two church institutions? Well, I think the way you've said it is very interesting, David, because to say that they told my story back to me in an altered way is is interesting. I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. I've thought of it more as simply being silenced. But in a way, that's telling your story back to you and saying, but you see how it doesn't really matter, (laughs) your story. Let's discount it and say why you don't need to ever tell it again and why you should just move on. This notion of leaving something behind uh, because it's not worth discussing or somehow not worthy of discussing or somehow not appropriate to discuss. I don't want to mischaracterize your experience of that, and let me just take a moment and explain why I said it in that particular way. I'm thinking particularly of when you were sitting with the committee that oversaw discipline for the Presbyterian Church that you were working in, and for readers, the experience that we're talking about, the pastor had come in one day to your office, swung you around in a chair, grabbed you by both shoulders, and planted a kiss right on your mouth, at which point you say that you stood up You kind of pushed him back and you said no. And then when you later tried to bring some discipline around this abusive action, one of the members of your community, if I'm remembering correctly from how you wrote it, said, oh, that was simply his expression of Christian love. That's how he expresses Christian love. My jaw dropped at that moment reading that because to to look at that action and say, no, this is just how pastor expresses Christian love. You've heard clearly what happened and what happened was not okay, but now you're telling the story back to Reverend Everhart to you in a way that is completely twisted from the way that you experienced it. But I want to make sure that my reading that is tracking with with the way that you're thinking about it. So if you want to call it silencing, I would rather listen to your characterization of, of it being a silencing and not a retelling. That makes perfect sense to me, too. Well, no, I appreciate you using that word. I feel like it's why it's important to talk about this subject, because you see a nuance to something that you haven't seen before. And I definitely would agree that there was distortion and discounting. The, the phrase he used was, not just Christian love, but pure Christian love. And as you mentioned earlier, the word, you know, purity, uh, you know, but around sexuality is, is why it's so difficult to talk about it. And uh, to get that phrase, no, this is pure Christian love, 
it's laughable on some level. It's angering at another level. It's it's ridiculous to call an assault on a colleague an expression of pure Christian love. So, yeah, it was a complete perversion of what actually happened. And in that moment, when you heard that person who was basically weighing your fate as a pastor in that church in his hand, when you heard that characterization, this is pure Christian love, can you just share with my listeners kind of what went through your mind and your heart in that moment? Was it anger, or was it something else, or was it a mixture of things? Well, I think it was despair, because there was so much riding on it. I like the way you say, weighing my fate, because at the time, I was the sole support of my family, which included two small children. Just due to a number of circumstances, when we moved to this new place for me to take this church, my husband wasn't able to find a job. We had two very small children, and so we made the decision for him to stay home with them. So what was riding on my shoulders at that time is such a weighty burden was the fact that I was my that this job was my family's livelihood. So um, if my boss is going to be abusive to me, and I was given the message, well, that's just pure Christian love. In other words, you know, you just have to deal with it. All I could feel was this sense of despair and, oh, Lord, could I keep going on? Could I keep going on for the sake of my family? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Ruth Everhart. We're talking about her recent book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. Now, one of the things that we're beginning to touch on, and you you speak about this at repeated points in your book, The Me Too Reckoning, is the fact that churches are institutions, and institutions have an interest in protecting themselves against stories like yours. They will almost twist and turn in any direction to avoid actually confronting the genuine honesty of an assault that has happened in their midst. And at the midpoint of your book, in a chapter that you titled Accountability and Justice, this also jumped out at me. You wrote down seven easy steps for churches confronting difficult truths. But what struck me about that was that each of these steps and, and you mean it ironically, I know, each of these steps is designed to get the church to weasel out of actually confronting the difficult truth. But I'm wondering if we could take a moment or two and just kind of talk through some of the difficult truths that churches avoid and some of the mechanisms that they use to avoid those truths. Sure. Just to start off, the, the very first one is you say, avoid hearing the truth and pretend that you don't understand what's wrong. Unpack that for us. What do you mean by uh, pretend you, you don't understand what's wrong? What's a concrete example of that? Churches are very uh, prone to wanting to deny stories that are difficult to hear because churches are very attached to their reputation. For many churches, it's really kind of the most important thing they have. And so uh, there's a safeguarding of that, even at the cost of the truth. And if the truth is difficult, you know, the way to kind of weasel out of that is to throw doubt on its veracity, you know, to say, well, was it really so bad? Was it a matter of interpretation? I mean, that happened in my story, uh, as we discussed, but it happened commonly. Victims are, are second guessed. 
and their reality is questioned. And since there aren't usually witnesses to these incidents, it very quickly can devolve into an issue of who has more status, whose voice has more authority. And in a church, we know who those people tend to be. They tend to be the highest up on the food chain. Well, and and in that context, uh, midway through your seven easy steps for churches confronting difficult truths, you say another is to protect persons in power and remember that there are two sides to every story. And if I'm hearing you correctly in what you just said, you know, the, the persons in power are protected by emphasizing that, oh, well, there weren't witnesses. You're simply mischaracterizing the situation. You say it this way, but they say it this way. And... I'm struck by, in your own story, you mentioned that in that committee where they were looking at the situation with the pastor who swung you around and forcibly kissed you, they immediately went to trying to discern the pastor's intent, and that that intent became the most important aspect. Like, what did the pastor mean in that moment, rather than what was actually done in that moment? And that is, that's a way of two-siding the story, isn't it? Yes, it's a curious phenomenon, isn't it? And I think that one reason it's so uh, tempting for churches to act that way is because it puts the misdeed in the category of sin rather than crime. And we're more comfortable in that category. So we're used to attributing sin in part to someone's intention. And a crime is more uh, a matter of fact. Did a person do such a deed or not? And so I think it's interesting that there this kind of, you know, kind of stepping back, pulling back into the issue of intentionality is a way then to uh, leave the victim hanging out by herself because you say, no, well, even if you experienced it that way, that was not what he meant. You just misunderstood. Well, and and going on in your list of the seven easy steps for churches confronting difficult truths, you round it out with two kind of blockbusters. And the sixth one is, if harm has been done, try using Jesus and forgiveness in the same sentence. And and then number seven is resume business as usual. But I, I want to linger on six for a moment, because there's a real push in certain strands of Christianity to drive a victim to forgive a perpetrator. And that that almost becomes, if the victim can't forgive the perpetrator, in certain communities, that's almost deemed worse than the action that the perpetrator committed against the victim. Uh, first of all, am I characterizing that in a way that you would recognize, or would you say that in a different way? No, I agree with how you put it. And in fact, I think what we see is this real tendency to conflate all sin. So that no matter what it is, you say, well, he sinned, but so are you by not forgiving him. And as such, it, it, it's not really biblical. And it's so unfair to the victim because then um, the whole work of what forgiveness actually is is short-circuited. And, and in the steps of repentance and restoration become impossible because because somehow now there's no need for them, because we've jumped from the act of the sin to forgiveness without going through the necessary bridge that's given to us in Scripture in many places. I think of, like, Psalm 55, 
of repentance and confession and doing it differently and of then being restored. So that never or very rarely happens with these kinds of assaults. A moment ago, you drew a parallel and you said we oftentimes want to or institutions want to collapse these sorts of questions into questions of sin and to not characterize them as questions of crime. What difference does it make to introduce criminal language into a church context? And I'm thinking right now, in not just in terms of, of, of sexual assault against women, but also I live in Chicago, and my wife grew up in Pittsburgh. These were two areas that were deeply affected by the Catholic Church abuse crisis. And I'm wondering about what it means to move from a language of sin to a language of criminality in a church context. How does that change the dynamics of power? I think it's a very essential movement, and I think it's one that the church is, by and large, resisting. I mean, we see, as you mentioned, the Catholic Church resisting it. And, you know, this becomes, in a sense, the role of media, of journalism, is to open up the truth of what happens so that it can then be recast and seen as what it really is, which is a, a crime as well as a sin. And I, I don't know why it's so difficult for the Church, except that that changes perhaps its understanding of, of what it is, and perhaps threatens its power. And when you say it threatens its power, make that concrete for me. So what power might be lost by the Church opening itself up to this kind of truth? Well, the Church... For instance, the Presbyterian Church has the ability to have a court system, that an ecclesiastical court system. If instead of using that system, one uses a criminal justice system, there's a sense in which it's taking the, the uh, power to adjudicate from the Church and giving it to civil part of civil society. And I think that, you know, you look at denominations, the more the more they are what we might call cult-like, the more tightly bound they are, the more they are dependent on charismatic leadership, the more that they have tenets of that control the, the behavior of members, those are much more likely to want to be self-governing. And it, it might seem harmless from the outside, but what it creates is a system that becomes secretive and that can hide misbehaviors of all kinds, uh, including this one, but as you've said, others as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Ruth Everhart about her recent book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. 
You can find the Commonweal Podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with the Reverend Ruth Everhart. She has served the Presbyterian Church for more than 20 years in pastoral contexts, and we're talking about her recent book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. And again, just a note to listeners that we are dealing with Frank's subject matter in this hour. Well, towards the end of your book, The Me Too Reckoning, you talk about what congregations can do. And there's a sentence from that section that really just stopped me in my tracks. You write, congregations must realize they already have a ministry to survivors, a ministry of absence. And I'd just like to ask you to expand on that and unpack that. What do you mean when you say that congregations are ministering to victims of violence by their absence? I think that we often don't give absence its due, that absence can be so palpable that it actually has a presence. And that may sound like a strange thing to say. I I think I didn't unpack it more in the book because I felt like it would be tangential. But for instance, I think of all the post-resurrection stories of Jesus, and they're all hinging on whether Jesus is present or absent, right? Mm. And it seems to me that it's an article of faith that there is, in a sense, no such thing as an absence of Jesus that even when he's absent, it only creates a void that reminds you of the power of his presence. Well, there's a, there's a line that comes to my mind in trying to characterize that, and it, forgive me, it's from a, from a song from the 1970s, but the, the line goes, if, even if you fail to decide, you've still made a choice. And so the, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, even if the Church thinks that simply by not acknowledging it, it's maybe just making the problem go away. It's not making the problem go away. What, what you say in the book is that the absence is palpable. It's like withdrawing food or water. It creates an impact, even though it's not an impact of presence, it's an impact of absence. And so the Church's inability or refusal to pick this up and to champion the victims. I think we're talking about, about naming and championing and, and bringing, just like Jesus does to the woman with the issue of blood, we're talking about welcoming victims back into community. And the Church's failure to do what Jesus has shown us to do, that makes an impact on the victims. Am I, am I reading that correctly in your book? Absolutely. And so you are doing the opposite of that in this book, The Me Too Reckoning. And one of the ways that you're doing that, it it struck me how very clear and transparent you were about the events. And you name names. You You name the pastor that assaulted you. You name the people that were on the committee. You name the breaches of trust that the psychologist who was supposed to hold something that you told her in confidence failed to hold it in confidence. You're naming the people along the way. And there's a, there's a power to the presence of that honesty in this, isn't there? There's, there's something that comes from being able to name it clearly. Am I correct in that? Yes. I mean, I think there's power for me in doing the naming. It feels powerful to do such a thing. And I'm glad that it felt powerful to you as a reader. Well, did you ever have a hesitancy? I mean, as you were thinking through, should I put these names in the book? 
were you thinking about the repercussions or were you were you simply saying it doesn't matter it has to be told what what was the thought process behind the way in which you structured that truth telling well i certainly considered all the ramifications i had conversations with my publisher university press about what might happen if i named certain names i had conversations with my husband we uh talked about ways to handle it. I was able to name the name of the uh, abuser because I did, as one chapter in the book describes, uh, bring an ecclesiastical lawsuit against him, and I did prevail. So his name is in public documents, and therefore I felt free to be able to name him. Just to mention, the other people you mentioned who were on the committee, I did give them pseudonyms. So there is kind of a mixture of which names I felt that I could say aloud and which I felt I had to obscure. That's helpful, and, and I appreciate your, your clarifying that particular passage. And so in this process of truth-telling, in this process of saying these things out loud and these conversations that you had with your publisher, with your husband, with others whose counsel you trusted, did any of them counsel you not to? to name names and not to talk about this, or were all of them basically in favor of this kind of transparency? Well, I think that the publisher and my agent were both careful to leave it completely with me and not to sway me one way or the other, which I think I appreciated because it kind of reinforces my agency, which is a big theme for me, to have the ability to make choices that matter about my life. Of course, the person who mattered the most was my husband, and we've been married for 35 years and have lived through all these things together, and I knew that I would be swayed much by his opinion, and he was willing to be bold, and so I said, okay, honey, let's do it. Well, and so as you've been telling these stories, you've already sort of talked about the fact that there's a great deal of solidarity when you walk into a room and people are raising their hands saying that they have also experienced this. And that that is really at the heart of this hashtag Me Too. If I can ask you kind of what are some of the the ways in which people have let you know that they have been affected by this, not just raising hands and, and certainly without giving away any confidences, but just what are some of the ways that people have expressed solidarity with your own story as you have been both writing it and talking about it? Well, I would say there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. There's all the stories that I hear, the messages I receive through email, through Facebook, through Twitter, through all the ways that we connect on social media now, right down to the old-fashioned letter being sent to my church. Um, People saying, I have a story, and I think I want to tell you. I think i become a safe repository for that story. That's where I got some of the stories that are in this book. And then the other end of the spectrum would be women who would say to me, or men too, gee, Ruth, I'd like to read your book, but I just can't because it's too painful. And so they're disclosing to me that they also are a me too, perhaps, or close to someone and are unable to address it, at least yet, at least in the way that I do. So people on both ends of kind of the recovery spectrum, I guess, reach out to me in different ways. And both kinds of reaching out are appreciated. There's no, like, right answer to this question of how to be a victim or a survivor or even what kind of language to use for yourself. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. Our guest today is the Reverend Ruth Everhart. We're talking about her recent book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. Well, a moment ago, you just said that there is no right answer for dealing with these subjects of abuse and sexual violence in the church. Nevertheless, writing a book like this is not only an act of courage, it's an act of hope. And it's clear as you're concluding the book that you have some ideas about steps that churches and communities can begin to take to confront these sorts of issues head on. And I wonder if we could spend the last part of our conversation digging into some of those concrete steps. What can we as church communities be doing? What can my listeners be doing to begin to take concrete steps around these issues? Yes, I do try to address that pretty straightforwardly in my last chapter, which I call A Way Forward, because it's important to me that it's not just a book of sad stories, but that it's a book of of hope, as you say. And so um, I issue it as a call to action. And some of those actions are things like acknowledgement of past sin, lamentation, which I do try to address in its own chapter, I think the role of lamentation is really key and that the Church has resources for that that we don't avail ourselves of enough. And so I'm encouraging churches to do more liturgical responses to this issue. I hope churches will put the hashtag on their church sign, that they will use the hashtag in a sermon series, that they will have adult education classes, and that by doing this, we'll cue to people that this is a safe place that we can talk about these things, that this is real, and to have um, lamentation together. Um, I talk about it in terms of the Church becoming both safer and braver. Well, it's interesting to me because I think a lot of times people will dismiss social media as just a triviality. But one of the things that's very powerful about this and the way that it connects to your story is that this hashtag, Me Too, became a way in which social media allowed for that kind of solidarity, that kind of truth-telling. And I'm, I'm just wanting to invite you to reflect on that for a moment. That's a kind of revolution in and of itself. I mean, you, you're a writer, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you today about a printed book. But this particular hashtag exists in the ether, in the kind of cyberspace. Nevertheless, it had such a tremendous impact on the ability of people to rally together to tell these stories. And I'd I'd just like to invite you for a moment to think about kind of what that means for the future as we're talking about concrete steps that the Church can take. Yeah, most churches are still learning how to really utilize social media. In the introduction to my book, I talk about why I wish the Church was at the forefront of this Me Too movement instead of being kind of a laggard at the back. And I think maybe churches are hesitant to embrace social media. Some of them are hesitant to embrace a banner of any kind, a social justice banner, which is what I consider this movement to be, you know, akin to the civil rights movement, a way for people to raise an issue that is important and that needs to be addressed and can be addressed through the life of faith. So I, I would hope that churches would become more comfortable with these different ways of being in the world. I mean, what's happening to the churches 
denominations, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, right, about how we are diminishing, how our, our pews are emptying out, how more and more we have buildings that are almost left over, you know, not really fully utilized because so much has moved to other spheres of life. So what would it take for the church to enter into the digital world, the cyber world, in a way that would empower it and to make it flourish again? At my age, I think that I'm really hoping that folks of the next generation or two will really step up and show us the way to do that, quite honestly. Well, as you've been dealing with these subjects, I imagine that there are things that still continue to deeply frustrate you. And so when you think about the steps that have been made, even in the last two years around the ability for survivors and victims to tell their stories, I imagine that there are things that still frustrate you. What are some of those things that still frustrate you? And uh, just so that you know, I'm going to then turn the question around and ask what continues to keep you hopeful. But let's start out with the frustration. Well, I think that we're still in the process of learning to listen to these stories and know how to respond to them. So I think my frustration is that we're still not very good at it. And I feel the frustration of the backlog of stories that has gone unaddressed. And so I think people are afraid of it because it's like that Thurber McGee's closet or whatever, like you open that door and what's going to come tumbling out? And I think that that's what the, um, see, I dated myself right there. That's like from my parents' generation. But this notion that there's just so much built up behind. And so I think the church's response is often fearful because, as I mentioned, the church is not necessarily, the church in its broadest sense is not necessarily thriving today. And so when that happens, there's that tendency to want to shrink and become safe, which is the opposite of what we need to be. We need to be risk-taking and brave. Well, and so let me then turn the question around and ask, what is it that continues to keep you hopeful and to bolster you in the midst of that frustration? Well, I find my greatest hope always in the story of Jesus Christ. No matter what happens to the institution of the Church, nothing there can erase the reality of Jesus Christ, his story and his ministry and what he offers to each of us. So there is so much hope in the gospel itself and in the fact that were this generation of Christians to die out, another generation would rise up because it always has. I have complete hope and trust in that reality. The institution You know, I've given my life, my professional life to the institution, so yeah, I care about it and its future, but that isn't where I hang my hope. I hang my hope on on Jesus, and in the sense, within the the Trinity and that role that Jesus plays in in completing uh, the work of salvation. So I feel like if people actually could strip down the gospel to Jesus and understand what he offers to every person who is treated as less than, as less important, less worthy of respect, less valuable, I feel like, you know, the world would shift on its axis as we came to really appreciate the, uh, the power and, and the pure grace 
from that gospel. The title of your book is The Me Too Reckoning, and I've been thinking a lot about this word reckoning. It indicates a course correction. Uh, when you are navigating, it is setting the iron sights of your compass and your sextant back so that they accurately reflect the landscape and get you to the right place. What does the church look like in your imagination after this reckoning has occurred? In my imagination, the church could be a place of equality, a place that prizes justice, a place that is open to any human being who exists on the planet, There is no one outside the perimeter of the gospel, um, a place where people could talk about the things that cause them to shed tears at night, the things that people are unwilling to share even with the people they love, things that make them feel inadequate or unworthy. Often for women, these are things to do around sexuality because Women inhabit their bodies just in ways that are different than men. And in my perfect church, the church would see that uh, as a gift, as uh, a way of embodying the gospel that is unique and valuable and an antidote to our power-mad world, which too often thinks that, that grabbing more power or abusing power is somehow legitimate if it's done in the name of Christ. And that is antithetical to the gospel. I mean, the the oldest hymn of the Christian faith is in Philippians, about Christ divesting himself of power for our sake. And so, in my mind, uh, the perfect church would be a very broken and bleeding and perfectly healthy place, because because it would have honesty about all these these broken edges and would always hold up the banner of justice and therefore help bring about this kingdom of God that we talk about, the kingdom of God, where uh, people are equal and everyone is valued. Well, Ruth Everhart, I have to say that reading your book, The Me Too Reckoning, was eye-opening for me in so many ways. But most importantly, I was drawn in by just the candor, the honesty, and the bravery with which you wrote not only your story, but the stories of others. I'm thankful for the way that you wove in Scripture, and I I hope that my listeners will pick up this book, even though it's about a difficult subject. It is so important for us to be talking about this. I want to thank you for taking time to write the book, but also want to thank you for taking time to talk to us about it today. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with the Reverend Ruth Everhart. She's an author, speaker, and pastor, and she served the Presbyterian Church USA for more than 20 years. She writes for The Christian Century, Sojourners, and The Washington Post, among other publications. She's the author of Chasing the Divine in the Holy Land, and she's also the author of the book Ruined. We've been speaking today about her most recent book, The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. 
Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>